Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Welcome to yet another session of Radio Finance. Today, my guest is Professor Dale Fisher, who is the Vice Chair of the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, an agency at the World Health Organization, uh, who was also a member of the WHO China joint mission to China, to Wuhan, to and various cities in China, where they studied uh, how China was responding to the uh, COVID-19 virus. Um, he's worked on a number of previous pandemics, uh, SARS um, and uh, H1N1, I think, and also um, Ebola uh, and so on. And so um, a, a global expert uh, in uh, infectious disease. I did ask him if he was um, more of an epidemiologist or a, or a um, statistician. And um, I think uh, the answer that he will give will be very interesting uh, to hear because I think that as we think about uh, the impact of um, the lockdowns taking place in many countries, uh, we, it's more a numbers game uh, rather than a virus game, uh, you know, if you were to argue it that way. Let me just go through a short presentation to uh, bring us all up to scratch uh, in terms of where we are right now. Okay, um, if we're all trying to get through that um, graph, the bell curve, uh, China seems to have um, gone down the other side of the bell curve. Uh, right now, worldwide, 1.3 million people are infected with the virus, 74,000 dead. Uh, 370,000 uh, infected in the U.S. alone, 10,000 dead, um, and so on. And there are other ways to look at this data. People per million uh, in terms of population in, uh, affected or infected, um, you would find that um, countries like Switzerland, Spain, Italy has in excess of 3,000 per million people have infected um, in their respective countries. And China, where it all started, um, despite the large numbers, um, uh, it has only about 58.3 million people affected, um, you know, and uh, as a portion of the total population. Uh, and uh, it is in remission, uh, as well as uh, China has taken the reverse course of closing its borders because of fears that the, the virus will come back uh, to hit it from returning uh, Chinese and uh, visitors from abroad. Um, in terms of the approach taking, taken by the different countries. Um, there is mass testing, there's contact tracing as first lines of defense. Uh, some countries have, had, uh, have, have done mass testing a lot better than others uh, and contact tracing, um, but uh, it's not widespread uh, in the way in which it's being applied and that um, has shown uh, to have had effects uh, in countries uh, that have not um, started uh, earlier in the course um, and therefore um, are seeing a surge in, in uh, hit rates in terms of uh, the number, number of uh, people affected. Um, worldwide, more than 125 countries have imposed lockdowns um, and causing a lot of uh, you know, disruptions in business, work, livelihoods and so on. Uh, and that is the purpose we are here uh, to have this discussion um, with uh, Professor Dale Fisher. Thank you very much for joining me here today. Uh, straight into the first question, the, the whole idea of a lockdown, uh, a lockdown playbook as it were, uh, is it a statistical 
uh, warfare or is it an epi epi uh, you know is it a virus uh, um, you know uh, uh, warfare? Uh, there's plenty of uh, military analogies flying around. Don't worry. Um, li listen, a, a traditional uh, outbreak response, whatever it is, whether it's uh, you know cholera or, or or Ebola or or, or anything, a, a foodborne outbreak, it's 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 find the the cases. Um, so early case detection, uh, diagnose, um, isolate appropriately. Uh, find the contacts, track the contacts, and if they get disease, then you can isolate them quickly. And eventually, if you keep isolating the cases, you, you can shut down the virus because you're stopping it spreading to other people. Now, there, there is really no uh, playbook which says lockdown. Um, is that a Chinese invention, by the way, the idea of a lockdown? Uh, I think China maybe did invent it in... Uh, in January, um, and this is telling people go home, no work, you know, essential services, but uh, but but no work, no fun, no entertainment. You go to your house. You only come out if you absolutely have to. Um, now this shifts the transmission into households, so you get the household clusters, uh, but eventually it burns itself out. Now if you do that for for maybe four to six weeks then actually you will bring down transmission. You say bring down transmissions, or is it slow down transmissions? Is it inevitable that this particular strain of virus uh, is something that is going to be endemic rather than pandemic? Yes, it, it'll end up endemic. Um, so so the, the end game really is, is that now the best countries can do is try and contain it to as low as possible because we know if you don't contain it, it, it kills tens of thousands of people and overwhelms your health systems and, and things like that. So we have to do whatever we can to contain it. So, so then the question with the lockdown period is, are we talking to, let's try one month and then if it is, if it is still you know, proliferating very quickly and then we try three months and it is still proliferating, um, you know, what are we seeing now for the countries that had lockdown uh, for, for sufficiently long period? Okay. So there are three things can happen during a lockdown. One is you'll reduce transmission. Two is when there's less cases, the hospital system can recover. So instead of having full beds and all your ventilators taken up, you know, that, that will clear out. Either people will get better or they'll die. But so the first one will take, the transmissions should take four to six weeks. The, um, the, uh, the second hospital. one is the uh, hospital recovery. And, right. and that, that's going to probably take a little bit longer, you know, maybe, maybe eight, 10, 12 weeks. But the, the hardest one for many countries will be how do you reopen and how do you reopen with... Um, you need to have all those traditional things in place. So how much contact tracing you can do, what sort of quarantine facilities you've got, what sort of laws you've got in place to, you know, public health laws do you have in place to, to make sure these are, are brought in. And this will actually take longer, you know, somewhere like um, US and Europe, you know, 
they don't have these systems in place like China, Singapore, Korea, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong. We, we, have, we all have these systems in place. So this is why a lockdown in Singapore really could be four weeks. My gut feeling is if it's going well, they'll say, let's have another four weeks. But, but they may be able to start undoing the screws quite quickly because our hospital system is not overwhelmed and our systems are in place. Here's the question that we need to tag to you know, the approach, which is at what cost? Um, you just said that if Singapore you know, finds that uh, a one month um, lockdown is, um, you know, is working, then another one month for precaution's sake will be good. But that's two months and um, you know, the impact on the economy uh, you know, will be something that is a price that not many countries would want to pay. The, the question is that for how long, at what price, and for what effectiveness? I still think the mainstay is what I said about case detection, testing, isolating, quarantine, yep. and all that stuff. Yeah. But, but the only, so, so after that, the only dial you've got is the social limitations, right? And you can ramp those up and tell everyone, you know, you're, you're locked in your house and you can come out once a week to go shopping. Um, you know, that could be the extreme. Or you could, you could say, we're just going to close the, you know, the nightclubs and the discos and the movie theatres, you know, because they're quite risky. Um, and in between is, is where you've got your dial. You know, China dialed it right up to the top. You might find in Europe and the States that everything's a little bit different depending on what stage of the, what they regard as essential and, and also what the community can tolerate. Let, let me talk about that, that second month. I think agility is very important in a government. So to be able to respond quickly uh, to shut down or to tighten the screws is good. Uh, I, I don't believe that in a month, the second month would be exactly the same, that they may tighten up or they might ease a few things off. But I think uh, in Singapore, they're, they're really very, very, um, uh, I guess, tactical, if you like. And they might say, you know what, we can open up those businesses again, but we better keep those ones closed. I, I think there'll be tweaking along the way and, and that sort of agility. Bringing back to the same point, right? Taking the lockdown playbook, uh, what are the parameters that you have in place and what are the indicators that you have in place that you like to look at to see how it will play out? Uh, the rest of society doesn't have the rest of the year to, you know, to be locked down. The idea is to reduce the mortality, um, and you know, and there are mechanisms by which infectious disease, um, you know, can exist in society and, um, you know, and be dealt with. So, so what are you looking at in terms of this particular COVID nineteen lockdowns? Um, when it works, what happens? When it doesn't work, what's the next? Uh, you know, um, you know, thing that you need to do. Yeah, so it's a question of how to come out of lockdown. And, and I think you can, um, but it's gonna be easier for some countries than others. It won't be able to, I think it's a long time before we've got, you know, 50,000 people at a football match again. But, uh, but, you know, I think by and large businesses and construction and things like that can get back. But, but there'll be some, I, I think there'll always be some limitations, but it needs to be supported by this 
capacity to isolate the positive cases and things like that, which most countries still don't even have. Uh, I seem to get from this that the professionals in infectious disease um, are proposing lockdowns uh, or anything that um, reduces mobility in order to be able to slow down the process of infection, uh, but um, um, you know that, but that may not well be the you know the final answer, as it were. Uh, and um, um, you know we we do not actually have, have um, a foolproof working model. Would it be that people in your profession would should be saying that actually we we don't know how this is going to play out? We're making it up as we go. <laughs> um, no. Um, we know a lot. Uh, we know that if we don't try and contain it, then the death rate is really high. Um, and we know if we don't do everything we can, then it's very infectious. So, and we know we can contain it with lockdown, but obviously we don't want a lockdown. Uh, and that's why Singapore has tried not to lock down. And I do believe in the next month or two, things will, will come easy again. Yeah, I have a question here from, from one of the uh, viewers here. Um, given that most of Europe has a highly diffused infections, uh, doesn't contact tracing have to start with testing the entire population? In other words, yeah. uh, the, a, you know, a lockdown timetable um, means testing everybody or everyone uh, as, many, as, as, uh, you know, as much as possible. You see that it wouldn't really help um, because you can be negative today and positive tomorrow. Um, so it would only give you a snapshot of that particular point in time. You know, once you've lost control like they have in Europe, then it's really just everyone stay, stay in your house. Um, if you've got severe disease, come out and we'll look after you. Um, but otherwise, just, just let it burn out in the houses. Right. So what do we know about the antibodies, for example, that if you get infected, um, are you therefore immune as a result that you actually build the antibodies? Do we know enough of that at the moment? But I'm using that to question your, just your point that, you know, that, um, that you actually reduce the, the infection rate. But... If it's going to be endemic, it, it means that all of us will eventually get infected. It's just not all at once. Um, no. So, so the the end game is a is is a vaccine. Uh, I, I I would not be advocating for natural herd immunity. Uh, I think herd immunity will come, but it needs to come through a vaccine because there's just too much devastation if everyone has to get naturally infected. 60% of the world, you, you just do the maths in whatever country you live in, you know, it, it's really millions of people need to get disease, which means, you know, tens of thousands per day sort of thing. Um, and and that would be the case for a year or more. So, um, so no, I, I think the, the end game is there's a vaccine. Uh, and that, that will cover most of the community, but vaccines aren't 100% effective anyway. So, so the disease won't go away and, and not right. everyone will have the vaccine. In, a, in the absence of a vaccine, um, the testing has to be perfected um, and the testing has to be made cheaper, more available and faster. Um, and I think that some of that is coming through 
um, you know, when do you think widespread testing and easy testing uh, will become universal? So there's a few tests being developed. So the antibody tests are coming, but they're not going to be good for diagnosing disease. They'll be good for diagnosing recent or, or past disease. So if you want to know if you've been exposed in the last three months, you could have an antibody test. Um, but but to, to diagnose it now is a PCR test. And you're quite right, that's got about a six hour turnaround. I know they're trying for some antigen-based tests, which hopefully will be rapid and point of care. Test Sorry, the number of questions code. coming on through. Um, you know, one straight, straight out question, you know, is therefore is herd immunity a misstep? I, I don't think, so the only way herd immunity could work is if the antibody tests find massive uh, asymptomatic transmission. If we find, if, if you need uh, clinical disease to be antibody positive, uh, then I suspect, uh, th then herd immunity is not gonna be a thing. We know a lot of children are gonna be antibody positive because they're not getting you know, the, they, they don't get symptoms and we know they're getting exposed and they've got asymptomatic disease. So there's going to be some asymptomatic spread by, like that. But if, if you think of it, if the US is, uh, you know, 250 million, and let's say 250,000 have so far been infected, then that's like 0.1%, right? So to get to herd, to get to herd immunity, you need 60%. So, so if only the clinical cases are becoming immune, then you can see the devastation you need if you're gonna to get to herd immunity by natural exposure. Now, if we find that uh, maybe 10 times, you know, then, then it's maybe 10 times that number because of all this asymptomatic transmission, you're still only at 1% and you've got to get to 60%. So, so the antibody studies are gonna be important but I honestly don't believe there's going to be so much transmission that natural herd immunity is a good thing. I think it's still going to come down to a vaccine. How influential is the agency that you head, uh, the Global Outbreak Alert and uh, Response Network, the, the network itself, how influential is it in countries like the UK, uh, which seem to favour um, you know, the herd immunity type of an approach? Uh, you seem to suggest that herd immunity is not the way to go. Um, and some of the Western countries are discovering that as the numbers come in, as it were. Uh, and yet, um, uh, testing is not something that they're even able to do, um, you know, extensively. Um, and, and those who are against testing uh, are even complaining the fact that you need to do multiple testing in order to, you know, to actually know uh, the, the numbers and how they're working out. So, um, you know, uh, is, is that a coordinated global response uh, or are different uh, countries, you know, taking their own responses and hoping that, uh, you know, a certain methodology would evolve from that? So, um, it's a good question. Normally, you know, when there's an outbreak, our, you know, go on the Global Outbreak Alert Response Network, will be called on by a member state saying we've got all this yellow fever, we've got all this cholera, or we've got all this Ebola or whatever. And we can 
help support the country's response. We can send in some experts in during the West African outbreak. We send in about 11 or 1200 people during the course of that of that outbreak. Um, but of course, it's much more difficult dealing with the, you know, a, a total pandemic because, you know, well, for instance, I can't go and help in Africa now because I'm required here. So, so the anyone that works for a, a national body has to um, really uh, um, do their work at home. The other thing is, is, is the the narrative was stolen quite early by by politicians, I'm afraid to say. Um, and I think you can think of all the countries and these are not outbreak specialists and, and often the chief medical officer are not ID infectious disease people. You were in that team that visited Wuhan, uh, uh, the WHO team that visited Wuhan. Um, what did you see there? Um, you know, um, what were they learning as the pandemic was evolving, um, you know, what lessons did you take out from the Wuhan, uh, you know, meetings that you had, uh, attended? I was on the mission, but only three of the members went to, to Wuhan. Uh, I went to Beijing and, uh, and Chengdu and then Guangzhou, um, and we all met up at the end. So we started together and then we ended up together to write the report and share all our ideas. Um, you know, uh, there, I don't think there's anything in that report that uh, has been shown to be wrong. Um, we knew this could be devastating because we saw the devastation in China. Um, and there is actually a sentence in there that says, um, you know, th this can have massive uh, health, social and economic impact. And we don't think the world has the capacity or the mindset to deal with it. So, so we had a very negative approach and, uh, and, and sadly we're being found to be correct. Well, in the report, you said that the so-called crude fertility uh, rate was 17% when the pandemic started or rather when, when the whole thing started building up and then it was brought down to 0.7%. Um, what was the cause of that large mortality rate and, and uh, what happened that you know, that brought it down very quickly to that, uh, to a manageable number. So, so when all you're doing is identifying the very sick people and the dying people, uh, and, you, and you're not recognizing all the mild disease, then, then your denominator is, is underestimated. So, so that, that's the first thing. The other thing is when, you're, um, when your hospital is overwhelmed, uh, you can't look after people properly. Um, and you can see, so you see now Italy's running at 10% or 11%, but that's largely because they've stopped testing the mild ones, but, but the hospital's overwhelmed and they're just telling people, sorry, we're out of ventilators, um, good luck with your oxygen mask. Um, so so the, the, the case fatality rate should be less than 1% when things are going well, um, but when you get overwhelmed and you can see how easily that can happen, the, the death rate goes up. Hasn't the WHO also been on a learning curve? Um, at first, the message, messages that you've been putting out was, don't, you don't really need to wear a mask. And if you need to wear it, you have to wear it correctly. And then now it's where if you can. The second is uh, how contagious um, you know, is disease, disease and that asymptomatic people can also, um, you know, um, can also spread it. 
um, just as virally? Firstly, of course, we're learning. Um, the pre-symptomatic, so that's shedding virus before you actually have symptoms, uh, you know, that's been proven to be true recently. Uh, I'm not sure uh, asymptomatic spread, but, you know, presumably it's possible. Uh, there are people that never get symptoms. Um, the whole mask thing is, uh, is quite contentious. You know, the, in science, we don't believe in, in general, most of us, in uh, public wearing of masks. Uh, I would much rather say uh, distance or don't go out. So if, if you're keeping your distance and if you're washing your hands so that anything you touch uh, doesn't get into your mouth, then that's safe. We think it can be managed with, you know, people that are sick wearing a mask, healthcare workers wearing a mask, or if you're looking after someone sick, wear a mask because you've got that continuous close contact. But, you know, none of us believe that this is floating through the air. Let me go into one area which um, probably has never been asked before, but the whole governance model of the relationship between the foundations, the pharmaceuticals, uh, and the agencies such as uh, yours, uh, the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, who funds your agency? Um, you know, is it just countries or is it also large businesses? And uh, no, it wouldn't be businesses. It, it, it's, it's donors. So these are sometimes countries, sometimes organisations. Um, uh, WHO, which gets its money from the same sources. So, uh, no, but there's no, uh, there's, there's no sort of private, you know, for-profit business involved. You know, one of the uh, criticisms of, uh, you know, donors, foundations like the Bill Gates Foundation is that uh, how much of that is uh, donation and how much of that is investment uh, in pharmaceuticals, um, you know, and, and that relationship. I think there's uh, another um, dimension of uh, criticism coming through saying that there is a kind of a, a covert, um, you know, uh, agenda, um, you know, to get the whole world vaccinated because that's good for big pharmaceuticals and so on. Um, you know, where are you on that conversation? Yeah, I'd say it's, it doesn't impact us at all. We, we, we wouldn't take money from pharmaceutical interest. WHO has to be very squeaky clean on all this, obviously. Just coming back on numbers again, um, we don't have a global uniform, um, you know, uh, data that we're looking at. You know, when the U.S. says that, you know, it's got, you know, so many data, uh, uh, that's different from what Italians say and what Chinese say. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, and where, where, where you have countries that um, are promoting herd immunity, you don't even know what the numbers are in the country. So. So, you know, it's very difficult to come up with a, um, a well-understood um, global response, as it were. My colleagues and I that, that, that are in the outbreak sort of uh, business every day uh, all believe that herd immunity is just uh, madness. The governments that have gone for that, I've spoken to science, you know, outbreak, epidemiology people, and they have said, you know, I cannot convince my government that this is, you know, mad. Um, and I think England actually did backflip within a couple of days 
when they said herd immunity. But I think the relationship between the leaders and the experts is, is pretty wanting in, in most countries. Um, you know, I don't see uh, CDC standing next to Trump at the moment. So clearly, you know, the, the advice is not being heeded. So they've been moved on. Which countries do you think uh, have got the equivalent of CDCs that uh, work as they should? Um, you know, and what, what should be in place for CDCs to, to be able to function um, you know, as they, they should? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, it, it's across the world, it's very messy. You know, who's in charge? Is, is it the, the national level or is it the state and provincial level? Um, and I think most countries haven't really got it sorted out. Um, and I know in Australia, there's a lot of tensions and, you know, some people have got powers for some things and then the national have got power for something else. And, but then I've heard in Germany, they think it was this devolution of, uh, of public health response to, to the states, which was part of the strength because those people really had good relationships with their community. Um, uh, what it should be, I, I don't think there's one, one model suits all. I think it uh, depends on your system of politics and, and okay. you know, it's, it, it's different in Middle East and as well. Would it make a big difference if a country like the US took the leadership, formed a, uh, used your agency um, or some platform uh, and created a coordinated approach towards the lockdown so that we can see where the movements are. Different countries will have to have different responses depending on where they are in the transmission cycle. That there should be leadership much stronger than what you have right now. Every country's it's got its own sovereign right. So, so WHO can't go to UK or somewhere and say you're doing this wrong, or go to Iran or China or anywhere. The WHO's got no no power. Every member state of the world has has its own authority to do it. Um, we make recommendations and we offer help and we. We share experiences, but um, but we can't do it. You know, even the experts within the country often have problems getting the message through to the leaders. The sense I get is that we're all learning as we go along, and uh, the data is not uniform. The responses are not uniform. Uh, the disciplines are not uniform. It does look like um, that there should be a more coordinated global response and authority. Um, and the people who have that authority are not asserting them. The only people with authority are the, the leaders of every sovereign state. There's no one else, there's no world body with, with authority. They might have influence, but, but, but that's the most. Um, and, and a coordinated global response, no. This is different in every city and every country. Everyone's got a different population density, a different population number, um, a different mindset, you know, as to what they're prepared to, 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 to take. Um, what's the relation, what's the trust in government? If you, if you don't have trust in your government, then the people also aren't going to respond very well. Um, so it's, it, it's chaotic. I, I don't take that away from what you say, but there are many reasons that's chaotic and there really is no one except the sovereign leaders that can say, 
this is what we're doing in our area. It's been a revealing conversation. Uh, I think it's more the dynamics of our conversation rather than any one answer. Uh, you did let through just now that if, if the lockdown in Singapore works for one month, uh, it'll be a good idea to have it for a second month, which, which I think coming from uh, an infectious disease specialist, uh, it's very interesting because it sort of reveals how you think about um, you know, uh, the effectiveness of these lockdowns and uh, you know, the eventual the goals that you want to meet. Uh, at the same time, you did say that um, the real goal that you're looking forward to is a, um, a final vaccine, um, which uh, for a number of the pandemics that we've had recently, we've not had that solution. So, um, you know, I think you have given us answers without realizing that you actually had. Thank you very much, Professor. And um, we hope that we can draw from you again uh, as, we, um, okay. as we navigate our way through this, uh, through this crisis. Together, yeah, okay. Nice to meet you, bye. Likewise. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Dale Fisher. That's as much as we were able to uh, just, uh, cover uh, in today's session. Uh, please uh, write your comments uh, in the platform that on which you will be watching this recording. Uh, we have uh, Radio Finance is on um, SoundCloud uh, as well as uh, Podbean uh, and uh, Spotify and uh, iPod uh, as well as um, um, our own website uh, and Facebook and LinkedIn. So please um, um, go into any of these platforms uh, and um, give us your feedback. Uh, and uh, join us again for future sessions where I'll be talking to a wide range of different people uh, in terms of um, how this virus uh, evolves worldwide. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.